You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Buzz Knight, the host of Taking a Walk, Music History on Foot. Follow us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And definitely uh, share the podcast with a friend. Feel free to uh, leave a review as well. We'd appreciate it. Today, we have the author of a recent book, You Can't Judge a Book by Its Cover. He is musician Ron Young, the founder of the band Little Caesar. He is an amazingly transparent storyteller about this era of hard rock and glam metal. He's had a wild ride, and he talks about it here on Taking a Walk. Well, Ron, thanks for uh, being on Taking a Walk. It's really uh, great to, to meet you, man. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Describe that first moment that you talk about in the book, You Can't Judge a Book by Its Cover, that hooked you on music oh man um it was probably one of the first concerts i ever went to was was zeppelin song remains the same i actually got to see one of those nights at madison square garden and just the power and this it wasn't even you know because they didn't have pyro and huge lights and you know, it was like a bunch of guys set up 20 feet, you know. They didn't have any of that stuff that bands later became dependent on. And just the sheer power of the music and what it did to just tens of thousands of people. And it was it was totally intoxicating. And 
it just stuck with me that it must just be so cool to get to do that, you know, as your way of life, you know? So it, it just always stuck with me. Well, then you had this other moment, too, that you talk about in the book. Let's just call it the uh, hanky-panky moment. Uh, can you ah, talk yes. about that? Yes, yes. Uh, yes, that's also where I got to see the intoxication of this. I was like six years old, and I was living in this big apartment complex in, in Queens, New York. And they had this big pool party, and there was some just local cover band that was set up. Now, you know, the pools in in New York City in these big, you know, apartment complexes would have a thousand people come there on a Saturday and just sit around the pool. And it was an Olympic-sized pool. And so this band is playing, and when they were taking a break, I it's like, I, I I would love to sing, you know? And they're like, you know, laugh, laugh, laugh. And they're like, what song do you know? And I was like, my baby does the hanky-panky, which I had no idea at six years old was such a sexually charged song. And they thought it would be absolutely hysterical for a six-year-old to get up there and sing hanky-panky. And I did, terribly, of course. It doesn't matter. Just hearing a six-year-old singing you know, my baby does the hanky-panky, you know, and it's like the the irony was lost on me, but all these people were laughing and clapping and cheering, and, and it really got in under my skin. <laughs> you know, I was told, I was never a musician, but I'm, you know, got stuck on the music business and the radio business, uh, got it in my blood. I don't remember this, but I was told in church at two years old, I sang this song by Fabian called Turn Me Loose that I don't even remember that song. And, right. But apparently <laughs> there I was in church singing it. So, Well, you see, it, it's, uh, it, it is intoxicating, I'm telling you. So I was a Mets fan. I grew up in Stamford, Connecticut, and you were in that backyard of, of Shea Stadium. Should we uh, sing a version of the Meets the Mets theme and see if we can really uh, turn everybody off? <laughs> you know, I, I only right, yeah, I only remember like the first couple of lines. But yes, I was totally in the backyard. We, I was living in a place called Lefrak City where literally you could walk over to the world, you know, where Shea Stadium was, which was over by the World's Fair Pavilion. And so I used to go to games all the time. And, you know, my brother would take me or occasionally I'd go with my dad. And this is when the Mets were in the toilet. I mean, these guys were down in the basement, new team. You know, there was maybe 5,000, 4,000 people in the whole stadium, you know. And then over the years, over the next four or five years, they started to become the miracle Mets, you know. But I knew all the players and, and you know, everything about them. And, you know, it was, it was really uh, a huge part of my childhood sort of, you know, entertainment was, was you know, going to see Mets games. And I think you describe in the book uh, this amazing story about Banner Day at Shea yeah. Stadium. And I think I might have been at that banner day 
because I, I went to a few banner days. Can you tell that story? Yeah, it's it's 1966, and the Mets, you know, trying to get people out to the park did this thing called Banner Day, where they invited all the fans down on the field to parade around with banners and compete. And, you know, they had like three or four prizes. And, you know, at this point, the, the grand prize was we won, and, and the grand prize was a black and white, Admiral black and white television, a case of tuna fish, you know, as we call it in New York, tuna fish, you know, uh, canned tuna. And this was all they could afford, you know. Once they became world champions, you know, it was like a trip to Hawaii. You know, I think years later, they'd given away cars and stuff like that. No, we got a black and white TV. But begrudgingly, my brother brought me down there. He wanted to go. My mom made him take me to the game. And he came up with this, you know, clever little way of, you know, dressing us up at six years old. And next thing you know, we're getting pulled into the dugout by these famous Ball players: Jerry Grodery, Ron Svoboda, um, Tom Seaver. You know, so I got to meet all my heroes, and I had no idea, you know, what this was. And yeah, next thing you know, we're we're like we made it into the yearbook, and you know, they invited us on television because you know, I guess it was quite the novel concept for a couple of six-year-olds to win Banner Day in New York, you know. And you describe, you know, that moment and certainly, you know, the hanky panky moment, your moment of uh, fame with uh, the New York Post and being on the cover with Mayor Lindsay. And yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, no. And I was on candy camera, too. They came to my nursery school and they picked me and a few other kids to be on candy camera. So here I am, six years old, I've already been on the cover of a major, you know, U.S. newspaper. I've been on Candy Camera. I've been on a show called Wonderama, which is regional time. Um, you know, I get, so here I am, six years old, I've already had these brushes with fame and notoriety. And yeah, definitely very addictive, you know, no doubt about that. To get, you know, this is, be, remember, this is, before social media, the internet, you know, so I think there's something in the human personality about having attention, you know, wanting to be on TikTok or on Twitter or, you know, and even back then, very much, uh, you know, proving the point that people all want to be, have their 15 minutes of fame. But it was this odd paradox going on in your life because you had this horrible home life that was going yeah. on. And and you, you were, you know, uh, cowering at many instances um, in that in environment. But yet you had that addiction to entertaining people. It was a strange paradox. Yeah. You know, psychologically, I don't you know, I, I think it's, you know, when you grow up in a household with an alcoholic, you know, um, who is a drama queen and wants all the attention. You know, and all you're trying to do is stay below the radar because you, you don't want all the fallout that comes with that. And then you kind of get out into the world and there's these ways of getting the attention. You know, definitely something 
truly psychological going on in that whole sort of situation. Definitely a lot of relief and a lot of, uh, you know, you know, sanctuary, so to speak. And on this podcast, we talk frequently about the power of what music does for people uh, in challenging times, whether it be physical, emotional, mental. Um, Music really was a saving grace for you, wasn't it? Oh, without a doubt. It It was an escape mechanism. It was a fantasy mechanism. You know, being able to close my eyes. I mean, music music takes you places, you know, and it and it paints these sonic pictures and it tells these sonic stories. And you know, when when you're young and impressionable, and these these things that move you to feel these emotions, it becomes incredibly powerful. And you know, everybody has songs that have been woven into the fabric of the, their lives. You know, you could play a song from high school and you all of a sudden are taken back to the memories. You know, and so music has these sort of sort of time markers in your life. And it, it's such a powerful psychological tool. And I think it's one of the things that makes music you know, just incredibly powerful and and vital to people's lives. So the band Little Caesar, I would say the band Little Caesar is also this paradox, this paradox of success and then this breakdown of the whole system yeah. all in, in one. Um, how, why do you think it was so complicated? Um, it was complicated between, uh, it was a combination of battles of enormous egos and just, you know, when everything that could possibly go wrong goes wrong in like a one month period in a business that doesn't have a lot of patience, you know, and then you combine, you combine adversity with a bunch of people who are trying to protect their success, you know column keep their batting average up so to speak you put all together that together and it's the perfect storm for a meteoric rise and then a meteoric fall and that's what happened to us you know um unfortunately you know for for us guys in the band it's you know this is our life we're not just a commodity we weren't just a you know a name on a roster so it was it was a really complicated whirlwind kind of thing that that just kind of steamrolled us. You know the uh, the Geffen years. Uh, as I'm reading that, and I I knew some of the characters from that uh, period of time, and they were always very uh, gracious to me. People like uh, Marco Babino, as an example. Um, but that era, the way you describe it, as I'm reading this. Uh, if it were a movie, it almost reminds me of part mob Goodfellas, part Three Stooges. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great description. Yeah, you know, you have these larger-than-life characters like John Kaladner, like Marco Babineau, like David Geffen, like Jimmy Iovine, like Bob Rock, all involved in one project. And 
you know, the the little spats and the battles of the egos and, the, you know, th- these are guys that they considered themselves rock stars in their own realm in, in what they did. And they had professional rivalries and they had little power struggles. And when you put them all involved in one project, more likely than not, you're going to get turmoil more than you're going to get alignment and that's exactly what wound up happening and they liked to uh get it to to arguments with each other oh god they lived for it i mean you know jimmy ivy would love to to get into it with david geffen you know john kalabner would love to get into it with with you know eddie rosenblatt and marco babino and all of these guys you know they're they got to be where they are because they have these enormous personalities. Egos as big as any rock star. The classic example is John Kalodner, who on every record puts his name twice. John Kalodner, John Kalodner. That was his hook, you know, to, to brand himself. Who walks around in this white linen suit with this long brownish hair and John Lennon glasses, like he's some sort of spiritual sonic guru. And, you know, he's got this weird kind of voice, you know, and meanwhile, it's like we go into his office and I I brought him, I remember when I brought him a shirt, our first Little Caesar shirt, and I go in and I give him the shirt and I'm like, here, here's here's our first shirt. Oh, Oh, wait, hold on a second. Let me return the favor. And he opens up his closet, and he's got four of his own T-shirt designs. He's got his own merch, right? <laughs> I mean, and it's four times as large as our selection of merch. And I just, it, it dawned on me that these guys are, they're, they're as much characters as any bandits, you know? <laughs> and then... You talk about the amazing Gene Simmons and what you learned from being around that character. What did you learn from Mr. Simmons? Oh, so so many things. I mean, Gene, Gene is one of those guys that everybody has a love-hate relationship with. You know, he's very outspoken. He's very opinionated. He's very caustic. He's very confrontational. He's also, he's also inside a sweet guy. There's a nice father and husband and he tries to be helpful to people but on the other side of the coin he will turn around and snuff you like a candle just because it suits his ego you know and so to be around a character like that and to watch him i mean literally every day on tour he's holding court he had his he had a couch that the crew would bring out and put into the middle like we were doing a lot of outdoor sheds, so outdoor venues. So they would bring this sort of leatherette couch out into the middle of catering, and he'd come and hold court like he was the Queen of Sheba or Jabba the Hutt, depending on <laughs> the way you saw him, you know. And he would just sit there and comment on women, how they were dressed, what they looked like, what guys were doing, what guys were saying. He'd call people over, have them sit down next to him. It, it was it was astounding to watch. And this is how he entertained himself. 
it's almost surreal. Oh, it totally was. I mean, because we were like, look at this guy. He's, he's, I mean, seriously, he, he, you couldn't have written a character in a movie any, any deeper than this guy was. And yet on the other side of the coin, he used to come back backstage every night after our set. And he would, he would give us like, like, like a, like a coach at halftime. He would, he'd come back and he'd critique, okay, tonight, this song was a little too fast. You guys are moving around on stage too much. Slow down. You know, you have to be more exaggerated in your movements. Wear different clothing. Do the, I mean, and, and he he was vicious in his commentary. You know, he pulled no punches. But the reality is, is that 80, 90% of the time, he was right on the money. I mean, this is a guy that is been he's been doing arena shows you know this is like our 10th show on tour and this guy has has done this thing like four five six hundred times so how could you not take his input as being gospel you know so on one hand he used to drive us crazy because there were some things that we really disagreed about and then on the other hand we were really grateful that he was taking the time to to coach us the way he was you know and come on, a genius of merchandising. I mean, the Kiss coffin, right? Oh, no, this guy invented it. I mean, seriously, I mean, the Beatles did merch, but they took, Gene took it to a level that, you know, was unsurpassed. I mean, it, I don't think there's one thing on this planet that hasn't been made once with the Kiss logo on it. And so, like you say, a coffin... There's probably kissed toilets, you know. I mean, it's absolutely incredible the amount of things that they stuck the Kiss logo on and sold. <laughs> and you had this other uh, surreal moment that was almost like a uh, an example of a Wharton School of Business moment with uh, Big Al from the Salem Hell's Angels in Salem, Massachusetts. Yeah. Uh, speaking to Steven Tyler from Aerosmith about a little situation. Can you tell a little bit of that story? Yeah, we, we did a show for the Hells Angels up in Boston, and, and we got thrown out of our hotel because we were misbehaving. It was us and Junkyard. We were playing together up there. And we got thrown out of the hotel, so I was like, okay, come stay at my house. So I'm staying at Al's house. Now, Al, Big Al is the president of the Salem chapter of the Hells Angels. And I am not very comfortable, you know, because here I am, you know, with this rather large man with all of these sort of unscrupulous characters coming in and out of the house. And Al gets a phone call while I'm there about a problem that they're having that Aerosmith came out with a new T-shirt design for their next tour that looked very, uh, how should I say, suspiciously similar to the Hells Angels logo. The red and white leathers, the, the lettering that they used for Aerosmith in Boston, Massachusetts, in Rockers. And I was like, you know, so listening to Al get all of this information from some of the other members, you know, he's doing his due diligence, so to speak. And he he's making notes on a notepad. And then he's like, okay, I got one more phone call to make. And he dials the phone and he's like, Stephen, 
Yeah. Big Al. Yeah, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, okay. Uh, so listen, uh, word has it is that you've got a new T-shirt design that looks just like our logo. And he's like, ah, well, listen, you know, uh, make as many excuses as you want. But let me tell you, that logo is trademarked. The colors, the red and white in that. Le- he lists this whole long thing like he's a lawyer in court, not when I see you, I'm going to break your face or you guys are going to, you know, you're going to fall off the pier and the, no, no threats whatsoever. Purely methodical legal jargon, like he was some seasoned attorney with threats of injunctions, threats of trademark infringement. And he hangs up the phone. And he's like, OK, well, got that taken care of. There's going to be a whole warehouse of T-shirts that will never see the light of day. And I was completely blown away by the the masterful, not emotional, no threats whatsoever, other than using the tools of the legal system, which had been used against gentlemen like this a million times, who has now turned the tables and who has gotten on the phone with someone who knows a thing or two about the music business and completely decimated him on a legal standpoint to do a cease and, a verbal cease and desist. And it was beautiful. It was beautiful to watch and listen to. Oh, I love it. So you had an almost moment involving the Red Hot Chili Peppers as well. And it was this moment in time where Flea was in some harm's way in terms of what he was no, doing. Actually, it, was, it was Anthony that was in harm's way. Okay, sorry. Yes, um, so Anthony, this is 1986. I'm living in Los Angeles. The Chili Peppers were just, you know, they, they were just a, a local band that was signed to a record deal. I think this is now, this is the coming up on the uh, Uplift Mofo Party Plan record, which is the record that really made him explode. And the band had gotten really tired of Anthony's antics, his drug antics. And he was a mess at the time. And, you know, at the time, Hillel was also in the band. He subsequently wound up overdosing and dying from heroin. But anyway, they kicked Anthony out of the band. And just they had figured that there was no way Anthony was going to get himself together he tried a million times so i went in and we started to work together and write songs together and rehearse together we started actually we did demos of, of the whole record of everything that i wrote because i had written a whole set of melodies and lyrics for all of those songs and we we demoed them all and then the next thing i know i get a phone call from police saying that anthony was out of rehab and he was doing great and, you know, that he was coming back into the band. It was great because of the way he put it was, this is not about business, this is about family. You know, me and Anthony are family. We, we grew up together. We've had each other's back. He, he didn't need to explain any further to me. I totally understood it and I totally respected it. You know, he totally did the right thing. And then obviously years later, the band has evolved and Anthony's singing has evolved and his performances have evolved. And it was just that band without Anthony just wouldn't be as successful or who they are. 
you know, so. But yeah, one of those almost another almost famous moment, you know. <laughs> so I, I read the book and I think about the fact of so many trials, tribulations, great moments, lousy moments, um, and so many learnings. So in in closing and thinking about that for maybe a musician that is, uh, you know, challenged, trying to work their way up, that's listening to this podcast, uh, what are some lessons that you would pass on uh, that, you know, you learned the hard way? Well, always be true to yourself and to your music. If you really believe in something, stick to your guns. Don't let some attorney or manager or record company guy or any of those people steer you off of your path musically. Um, the reality is, is that any of these people that come to you to try to do business with you were attracted to you because of your music. Never let them forget that. Now, there's always other things from a business side or a marketing side, all those things you can be flexible in. But you got to be true to yourself musically, because first of all, that's the only way you're going to like who looks back in the mirror every morning because you stay true to your art and to who you are and just stay persistent stay you know creative stay prolific don't keep reworking the same song ideas over and over and over again just keep writing songs keep trying to play with as many people that you can because each person that you play with will teach you something you'll learn something from them uh, sometimes in a good way sometimes in a bad way sometimes you'll you know Sometimes you learn what you don't want to be, which is can be as helpful as knowing what you do want to be. Never equate commercial success with talent. There's a lot of really untalented people that become really famous and rich, and there's some incredibly talented players that you've never heard of. So one thing has nothing to do with the other. Great advice and uh, a great book, a great read. You can't judge a book by its cover. Transparency about everything and must have been therapeutic for you. Oh, uh, it was. Totally. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, it's uh, sort of like drinking too much and throwing up, you know? It's very therapeutic. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ron, for being on Taking a Walk. My pleasure, Buzz. Thank you so much. Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, hosted by MC8 and Big Steel. It's every Thursday, a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Let's go. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.